just a 10-minute light rail ride from the heart of Denver, on the fifth floor of the Lamont School of Music, there is a rose. It is 10 feet tall and wide and hewn from stone. The panes of glass set into the petals bring the glorious Rocky Mountains into view. On the other side of the glass, six Lamont musicians sit down to discuss the world of music behind and beyond that window. This is the Rose Room. Hi, and welcome to the first part of the Meet the Host episode of The Rose Room. In this episode, you will be meeting Ruby Pachillo, Lauren Black, and Alice Major. We wanted to introduce ourselves before jumping into our upcoming episodes so everyone can get to know us a little better. First, we will be hearing from our head writer, Ruby Pachillo. Ruby, you're going to be a sophomore this year at Lamont in vocal jazz, right? Yes, I am. What has your journey been leading you to becoming a jazz major at Lamont? Who were some big inspirations for you? I've had an an interesting roundabout experience with jazz where I kind of started not even knowing that I was being exposed to it as a child. And I later came to realize that so much of it was floating around in my head and in my subconscious from the very early stages of my life where my mom would just put on record after record. She kind of fell in love with it before she met my dad. And then they fell in love to the album Clifford Brown with strings. And every single track from that album just resonates in my head from when I was very small. So there are just so many stories that family friends will tell about me asking to put on Fats Waller for the dinner party or me talking about Charles Mingus to a table of people who don't even know who that is. And started playing saxophone when I was in fourth grade. And that was the year after I really started singing in choirs. And my teacher, Mike Rubino, he actually played with the Buddy Rich big band for several years in the 80s. And he's just an incredible bebop player. And he would always encourage me to transcribe, to put together combos, to make things happen. And I'm so grateful for his guidance. The very first thing I can remember is in fourth grade, He had me go up on stage with a combo of people because I learned James Brown's Pass the Peas and learned part of the Maceo Parker solo on it, I believe. And we all played like the coolest set ever of just that and like a couple of other tunes. I transcribed my first Charlie Parker solo, the very, very beginning of it. And that gave me a huge sense of accomplishment. And I am amazed by how much He pushed me, and then years later, he hired me a few times to sing with his combo, and that just, like, that just gave me such confidence to know that this teacher who had supported me through my whole life put me on this path and then helped me get to the next stage. When I went to Allstate Vocal Jazz, and that's in Rochester, New York. I'm a, I'm a New Yorker born and raised, so I kind of learned everything that I know, not from taking lessons. I, I never took a lesson before I went to college, but I really learned everything in the way that I think a lot of my idols did, where I was just listening and collaborating with people. And I went to upstate New York for all-state vocal jazz, and I kind of realized that scatting is a pretty rare thing. That became a big part of my craft as well, realizing, oh, I have something to offer that I've been hearing since I was so young that 
not a lot of people really know how to do or want to delve into. So that's a very roundabout way of telling you my story of how I kind of came into playing jazz. I just tried out a bunch of different things all at once and they sort of came together and instilled me with this passion. I started playing with a group of people in Westchester who are just so killing. I'm very fortunate to have grown up where I did because being from New York, I saw some of my idols play in front of my eyes. I played with kids who were coming from the same background I did. And it was just amazing to really get to experience this craft through that lens. So how did you become a student at Lamont? What made you decide to audition for the jazz program? Well, I have a very diverse set of interests. And so it was really, really hard to triangulate everything so that I would find a school that I really loved. I knew I needed to be close to a city because I am a city girl, you know? Nothing's ever gonna come close to my hometown, but Denver, totally checked that box. Hip place, great jazz scene, fantastic education. And then I kind of, I always knew that I was going to be doing literature as part of my career. And I now know that I wanna be an editor of literary fiction and theoretical texts. I wanna author some things myself. I'd like to translate French texts to English. And all of that was really hard to find combined with my jazz degree in one package. And DU and Lamont are one of the few schools in the country that offer me that as well as an epicenter of jazz and literature and literary culture. So it kind of was a perfect fit. And I'm really, really happy that I ended up where I did. It's given me so many opportunities and being such a small place, I've really gotten to make an impact already in a lot of programs that I'm a part of. And I'm, I'm just so grateful for that. What is it like being a woman in the jazz scene? What sort of struggles have you found being a woman in the jazz scene? I've experienced a lot of strange things as a female in the jazz scene. And I think it's because I actually fit so neatly into that stereotype as a female vocalist, especially as a white female vocalist. You know, I'm taking advantage of an art form that does not belong to my history. And so I'm constantly re-recognizing that. And it's sort of a thing that has emerged is just, just this white female vocalist who shows up to the session and doesn't know anything. She doesn't know the history. She doesn't scat. She barely knows what key she needs to sing the tune in. Like, I want so desperately to defeat that stereotype, but it's very hard when I show up to any gig, any session, any even hang with jazz people, and I have to work so hard to prove that I actually know my stuff. It's amazing the amount of mental and emotional toll it's actually taken on me over time. It's been more difficult than I tend to let on to people. Many people who know me really well don't really know what kind of identity crises I've gone through throughout my life. And part of it is dating jazz musicians. I've dated a lot of jazz musicians because I'm just sort of entrenched in that world. There was one of them who I respected so much. He is one of the most killing musicians I've ever met. And against my better judgment, I had played saxophone for him. And I told him, dude, I am not good at this. Seriously, this is, you know, I've tried, but I'm not, this is not what I shed. This is not what I work on. 
And he texted me and told me that he had lost some interest in me because of that, that he felt like I wasn't as attractive to him. And how insane that my self-worth should depend on how well I can play my secondary instrument, something that I've barely practiced. And, you know, I was working really hard on the saxophone that summer, actually, but I knew I wasn't making as much progress as he probably thought I would. I knew I wasn't starting from the place he thought I had. When these things continue to happen to you, a lot of your self-worth, even in feeling, even in things not involving music, your, your feeling of how attractive you are, your feeling of whether you're worth enough to a love interest, they start to be wrapped up in what you can do and who you are and what you represent. I don't talk about this a lot because you can probably hear in my voice, I'm, I'm getting emotional about it, but to make it, to make a very long story short, it's difficult being a female and a vocalist in jazz. It's sort of double stigma that makes it really hard for me to survive in this world and to ever feel like I'm anything more than an imposter. For me to go in there and to have to assert myself so hard to say, all right, guys, we're going to play this in a little bit of an unconventional way. And and then sometimes people are surprised when I jump in at the break and I start to take a solo, but then they're all for it. It is sad that I have to take all of that time to sort of prove myself based on how I talk, how I act, how I present myself to establish that I am a knowledgeable voice. This is an issue that I care about a lot. I There was recently, I don't know if you saw this, but there was a post by a student from the New England Conservatory who said, hey y'all, we need to change the way that jam culture operates. Jam sessions are not welcoming spaces for women. They do not make women feel at home like they are even allowed to play a single note or open their mouths to sing because everyone assumes that we don't know a thing. And if you look at the comments on this post, so few of them are from women. 80% of the comments on the post or more are from men. It's insane. Like there are all these men who are not even jazz musicians, who are not even musicians and who are definitely not women who gaslight everything that we say and tell us that our experiences are only because we have no skills. I'm sorry. Have you ever seen a video of me? Have you ever heard me perform? Have I ever played with you? Probably not. And that's the problem right there. So uh, it's a big it's a big part of my life and it's a big part of how I view my identity as a musician. You know, that's actually one reason why I'm extremely excited that you're a part of our Rose Room podcast, as you are one of the voices, you're a head writer, you bring this passion that I think we all have. And I didn't mean to do this, but we brought together a group of only women to start a podcast, which once again, it's, right. you know, essentially radio, which is just a male dominated medium, like everything. Right. And you know why? It's because they can't see us. <laughs> they have to listen. And that's yep. what it's about. And I'm not I mean, I love men. Men are wonderful. Most like so many of my best friends are men. And it's probably because I'm surrounding myself with jazz musicians. A lot of them happen to be very compassionate and really empathetic towards 
what we do as women. And something I actually really love about Lamont is that it is not a boys club when it comes to the jazz students and, and the basis of how we learn about music. I, you know, there is still stuff that needs to change. It would be nice if my guys would listen to me instead of going off about problems that pertain to me when I'm in the room, but I love them. They're trying so hard. And I think it's pretty cool that we brought together this group of women without even thinking about it. It just proves that we do have something to say that our accomplishments and our voices can speak for themselves beyond what anyone else thinks or how anyone else perceives us. We totally can make our own path. Yeah. I guess along those lines, since we've been talking about jazz so much, are you considering continuing your career in jazz after you graduate? What sort of career are you wanting from this degree? That's a great question. I don't really know because I know that I need to come back to New York. I know there are a lot of killing people. Like I said, not so many people are scatting in New York. I mean, of course, there's Jasmia Horn and Veronica Swift and like all of these incredible people who find themselves in New York very, very often and are sort of names in the New York scene, of course. But that second tier of vocalists, the people that not everyone knows about, I find that it can be kind of hard to find New York jazz vocalists who really, really know their way around changes and around scat vocabulary. And, you know, there are plenty. I've seen plenty, so many incredible vocalists in New York. But but I think there's room for that particular circle to grow. However, my dream since I was very, very young has been to edit theoretical texts, literary texts, and also to translate works from French to English. And I'm hoping to write my own theoretical texts as well. I'm working on developing some things right now. And that is truly where I've seen my career going because as much as I'd like to say that I think of myself as a vocalist with vision and with a great gift and with incredible undying passion for jazz music, in terms of performing it, I don't know if it's like, if it's the prophecy for me to take that on as my career, but something I do know that I'm really good at, that I have a real vision for, that I want to really take on as a quest to be a leading voice in, that's the literary world. I see where the world can go, how we can educate people to value literature at a higher level, and how we can even change the narrative around translation. I think it should be more of an art than it is now. I think literary texts and theoretical texts need to be a more widespread, popularized form of reading. And I want to be at the forefront of that. You can hear it. I, I am looking forward to a life where I can continue to just take things as they come. My mom has always told me that I need to just let things happen to me. I'm not very good at that. So I'm hoping to keep an open mind as I go forward into my career and maybe see how I can mix media a little bit. That's the most amazing thing that we're able to do these days. So my literary life has really informed also how I write lyrics in songs, how I advertise myself, how I add depth and spirituality to my work as a musician. And so regardless of what I use or what I do, everything should be inherently intertwined because it already is. Well, Ruby, thank you so much for speaking with me today about yourself. Thanks for I letting me ramble. You weren't rambling. <laughs> 
I think our audience will really get a good sense of who you are and many passions that you have from this interview. So I wanted to say thank you for your time and I'll talk to you later. Thanks for listening, y'all. Thanks, Lily. Welcome back to the Rose Room, everyone. I'm sitting here with our director of media, Lauren Black. This is Ruby Pacillo, and we're going to talk about Lauren. We're going to meet Lauren, get to know her. And the first thing I want to ask you, Lauren, is how are you during this strange time where we're all separate, we're all apart, we're dealing with COVID? I'm doing okay. I was stuck in D.C. for a while. That was definitely harder because the weather is kind of awful there in the springtime, but being in sunny Colorado is a lot better. <laughs> nice. Yeah, we're both East Coast girls, and I know you grew up in D.C., right? Yeah, I did. Well, I always say D.C. because no one knows where, like, Rockville, Maryland is, but yeah, <laughs> so, like, 20 minutes outside of D.C., yeah. Awesome. I actually, I'm in, like, the same situation. I'm 20 minutes north of New York City, so being from the D.C. area, since you're a classical singer and you've been studying classical voice for a long time, what was your childhood like growing up in D.C., getting into music as a young child? So my parents are both very musical people. My dad wouldn't consider himself a musician, but he totally is. And my mom just really loves music. I grew up actually with a lot of classic rock, but they were also really into, like, they played classical music a lot and they played jazz music a lot. So as a really young child, I was exposed to a ton of different types of music. But then being close to D.C., I had the Kennedy Center, so I was able to go see a few operas every now and then and also being four hours away from New York City I was able to go and see a few Broadway shows so that's always that was always super fortunate of just being like on the east coast because you're really close to everything and I had a pretty good education I guess in music my high school had a pretty good program so I was well-rounded in like a bunch of different types of sounds and I'm really privileged to be able to have experienced that. So having come from a place as musically diverse as D.C., what made you come to Denver? So originally I had when I when I was looking for schools, I could no idea where to start. So I was like, OK, I'll just look at where family is. So I looked in Massachusetts, so Boston, and then I looked in Denver because I have family in Denver. And that's kind of like where I started for my application process. And then I heard about like there was a big jazz program or not well jazz program, but like jazz community around Denver. So that was really good. And then there was also Opera Colorado and just a bunch of symphonies going on. And, and there's not just in Denver, but, you know, there's opera in I think it's Aspen or Vail, one of the two. So I knew that there were a bunch of opportunities out here in terms of classical music as well as just music in general. So when you think about those opportunities and you're kind of trying to get off on your feet, are you are you looking for a career in music? Oh yeah, absolutely. I can't really imagine myself doing anything else, which is kind of cheesy, but it's true. I, I feel like I'm like at my happiest when I'm doing something in music and definitely I definitely see myself doing music in the future. Wonderful. That's all that matters, you know, is just being happy in the career that you find. And how is the music scene different for musicians kind of trying to enter the fold in Denver? Have you been able to find a lot of opportunities within classical music specifically? Yeah, um, I know the faculty within the voice program are really good about emailing us anytime there's an opportunity or a job opening that could be like a church choir job or, you know, if they're hiring or casting for a small opera in some small company, as well as like a Colorado opera. I know there's a there's a few students from the voice program that have been able to participate in 
the big operas at Opera Colorado. So yeah, there's definitely a lot that the faculty have provided us and the that the school has provided us in terms of participating in music outside of the program. Speaking of doing music outside the program, you're leading kind of a cool double life right now because I looked up one of your recent albums on Spotify and I found the mysterious Lou, your kind of pseudonym as a musician. And if any of you listeners look up Lauren's upcoming album, Seven Corners, on any streaming services, you're probably bound to find her under that name. And your music has so much going on. Like it is so sonically diverse. I found the production to be like ridiculously cool. I'm wondering, are you just singing on all of these tracks or do you play instruments as well? Like who's the crew behind your work? Yeah, so I originally released two demos and that was like, that was Sour and Plant Tattoo. And I, it was just me in this basement that I'm currently in, currently recording from with my guitar and logic and I you know have like a drum machine on there on my laptop you know synths on my laptop and then everything I recorded live were my vocals and then the guitar so and then I you know produced that and I watched hours and hours and hours of how-to logic videos in order to do it I'm so hard on myself when it comes to production so like nothing was perfect and eventually I just had to like put it online and put it on the streaming services. But this album that I'm working on, I actually was able to put together a band. So there's two Lamont students that are helping me with that. And then one DU student who's not part of Lamont, but is huge with music. So Justin Given is the, he's producing and mastering my album. And he also plays the drums. And Maddie Madeira was a jazz guitar major. She is taking some time away, but she played the guitar on my album. And then Kyle Wagoner played the bass for me. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I wanted to bring up that each of your songs has a very surprising and different feel from the last. And I'm wondering, is that like an identity crisis or is that part of your brand? That's really nice to hear um, because... <laughs> there's kind of an ongoing joke between me and my bandmates that all of my songs sound the same. What? Um, and yeah, well, I think, you know, there's a lot of songs that haven't been released yet that of do course, pr- yeah. sound pretty similar to like Sour specifically. Yeah, I don't know. I guess like there's not really um, an intentional like theme, you know, like a what's that, the, like a concept album, you know, how like there's like kind of like an intentional theme. I didn't really intend for anything to sound the same or sound different. It just kind of happens, I guess. Like, I'm a very, when I write my music, I'm a very emotional writer. So, like, it's kind of like, if I'm sad, I will sit down and write a song to make myself feel better. Or if I am happy or excited or nervous, you know, whatever. Yeah, it just so happened that they sound different. Or for, if you're my bandmates, they sound the same. So, (laughs) right. Well, I guess you're lucky to have collaborators now because that's what really causes things to sort of fall apart and expand. I'm guessing you're a Vampire Weekend fan. Yeah, I listen to them. I'm not a huge fan. Okay. Like, but I've, I have, I, in like middle school, I listen to them a lot. Right. But, right. Yeah. Well, something I noticed with their new songs is that their new music is so bad and it's because the bassist left the band. And to have like all different voices in the band, I think is just one of the most important things that you can have in musical collaboration even when you're kind of the front runner the headliner you know yeah and 
And listening back to the updated versions of the demos that we did, um, that or that I did, we but you know the band recorded Sour in Plant Tattoo, and it's definitely different. It's not better or worse at all. It's just definitely different because there's different people collaborating in the song, and there are some things that I like a lot more than I do in the demos, um, and then there are some things in the demos that I like a little bit more than than the live recordings, but. Um, but yeah, no, they definitely have an impact. And there were some times where it was like, I'm not a drummer. I'm not a percussionist. I really know nothing about beats really. And I'm learning about it. I want to get better. But there were just times where I was like, Justin, I don't really know what I want for this song. So you can just come up with whatever. And then, you know, if it's good, like it's good. And it was always like, you know, he was able to come up with something and it was always good. So it was definitely super helpful to have them a part of that kind of process. That's awesome. And one last thing about your life as an indie musician right now. Of course, I picked up on a lot of really beautiful choral arranging in your music, and I'm sure there's some classical influence there. So I'm wondering how your life as a classical musician and an indie musician crossover, if at all. Yeah, I think, like, I have always been vocal, I, you know, I play a lot of different instruments, but like singing was always like my go-to. I like started harmonizing the minute I came out of the womb. So harmonizing was like, I was like, I have to have harmonies in my music because it just adds such an awesome effect. Yeah, I think definitely like with my education with classical music, I was able to come up with maybe like more complex harmonies um, than what I would just hear and like think sounds good um like seven corners has some pretty interesting harmonies that I probably wouldn't have come up with had I recorded this album in high school yeah and you know there's also like some like harmony inspiration I don't know if you've listened to the fleet foxes but they're they're awesome like harmony central absolutely so so yeah so like definitely they're an inspiration for adding harmonies into indie music but as far as like the structure of the harmonies classical music has definitely helped me out with that wonderful and I'm wondering now that you're kind of coming to the end of your process with your album what's next for you where are you going oh yeah that's a good question um yeah so I want to release this album yeah I want to release this album Yeah, and just see where it goes, because I released Sour, and I did some marketing on TikTok, (laughs) where, you know, because I would just be on, like, the Explore page, and people would be like, listen to my song, and it would have, like, two million likes, and everyone's like, this song is awesome, and I was like, maybe I should just try that. So I did that. I was like, listen to this song. I think it's pretty fun, and then next thing you know, I have, like, I don't even know how many likes on the TikTok, but it's, like, over 100,000, I think. And I started getting a ton and like a ton of streams, like from like all over the world too. It was like Brazil and Australia and England and Canada. And then New York is like the the highest state, I think, that has listened to my um, album. So thanks, New York. Um, Hey, that's because I listened to everything three times last night. (laughs) Heck yeah. Heck yeah. But yeah, so that went, you know, kicked off. And I was like, maybe I could do this as well. Like maybe I could pursue this as like a career for a little bit and then I was able to do some to perform some gigs one in Denver and one in Laramie and the one in Denver I had a lot of friends that came up to and you know 
they had listened to my songs already. So they were like, of course, it's awesome. But then when I was in Laramie, I was really outside of my element. I knew one other person there and I just got like a bunch of questions about like, when are you releasing your music? Like, oh, like I want to listen to like, how many songs do you have out? And I was like, only two at the time. So I was like, I only have two. I'm really sorry about that. But they were like, oh, like, please let me know when it comes out. So it was like, I'm getting a lot of really good feedback from random people. I could probably release this album and just kind of see where it goes and, and hope, you know, for the best. And I actually had planned, I was feeling, feeling kind of, um, ambitious, uh, after everything was going on. So I was like, I could go on like a small tour on the East coast. So I was kind of in the midst of planning a tour, um, for this summer. And then, you know, coronavirus happened. So that didn't happen. That happened to so many people. Yeah. So you get more time to make things happen. Exactly. I have more time to plan. But yeah, so it was like, this could be something that I could do for a little bit. I don't have to have to jump into classical music right away. I think that's why I'm pretty thankful of the upbringing that I had of being versatile in music is that I can, I don't have to just do one type of music. I could do something else if I really wanted to, um, which I'm really thankful for. Wonderful. So I think we're about reaching the end of our time. And one more shameless plug for the album. Tell us all about it. Tell us what it is, who's on it, and remind us of who you are. So I'm Lauren Black, but I go by Lou. That's my music. And the album's coming out at the end of this month, which is July. We've got Justin Given on drums, Kyle Wagner on bass, Maddie Madeira on guitar. I'm singing vocals. It'll be out on all streaming services, and the album is called Seven Corners. Amazing. Everyone go stream Seven Corners at the end of July, and thanks so much, Lauren. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Today, I'd like to welcome one of our hosts, Alice Major. Alice is also the head researcher for The Rose Room. She has just completed her undergraduate degree at the University of Denver for vocal performance and history. Alice, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. So, Alice, you're originally from Colorado, correct? Yes. And you just completed a double major of history and voice. What was what was that like? I am one major. I can't even imagine tackling on two. It was quite a process. I, I have to say I did come in with some AP credit, and I think that saved me. But I was consistently at or over the credit limit for almost every quarter that I was at DU. Yeah, if you're not really, really passionate about your other major, I would not recommend double majoring while in music. So was your original plan to major in music, or was it originally to major in history, or you just knew right off the bat, I'm going to do both? That was an interesting process. When I was in high school, I was determined to major in English and become an editor for a major publishing company. And then I discovered choir and I knew I had to do music, but I didn't have a ton of experience in music. So what I ended up doing was I got an academic scholarship in addition to getting into the music school. And so I essentially funded my music degree with my history degree. I I really admire anyone that majors in history. I think history is really cool. It's definitely one of my interests as well. 
So were you able to find any links between music and your history major? Like, were you able to research in music or did you find anything about Colorado that was really interesting through your research? Just anything in particular, I guess, throughout your career at DU with your history major that you found super interesting? I I was able to find actually a lot of connection between my history and music degree. And I think they really helped each other out a lot. For the music major at DU, you, you have to complete two years of musicology, right? Which is essentially it's music history. And it's very similar to the process that we use to study history. And so my historical research ability and my musicology classes really benefited from each other. I think the coolest connection between my two degrees is as an undergraduate in history at DU, you have to write a thesis, which is not, unless you want to pursue honors or distinction, you usually don't have to write a thesis as an undergraduate. But I ended up writing a 30-page paper on the connection of art music to Irish nationalism. So I was able to use my musicology experience to go into old music scholarly journals and use those as my primary sources and open up a new set of sources that my history professors had never thought about. That's really awesome. Would you be able to give us a summary of what that thesis was like? I'm really interested about Irish history and also music as well. When we think of Irish music, I know that usually what I think of is like Irish drinking songs and like fiddling and jigs and stuff like that. And that's what I was thinking about coming into the project. But as I read through the sources, I increasingly noticed a mention of art music and composers writing about how, hey, we have a great history of traditional Irish music, but we don't have any kind of history of what we would think of as classical music, like Italy does, like Germany does. So I wrote about, it's been a long time since I thought about this. Yeah, I I wrote about how these composers essentially took the tradition of art music in other countries and the tradition of folk music in Ireland. And some of them tried to marry them together to create an Irish art music. And some of them thought, hey, the Ireland that we want is the folk music. We don't need to be like the rest of Europe. So I was really writing about Ireland finding its identity through the musical tradition. Do you believe that music originally was formed to allow a form of expression for humans? And do you think that, that's kind of a deep question, I know, but do you (laughs) think that that's kind of the basis for Irish music um, instead of the, you know, like in Italy and Germany, it was grand music, it was big music, like very scholarly music. And in Ireland, it's much more homey, I feel like. Do you feel like that was kind of like the the foundation for, for their music? Ireland's Ireland's history and, and culture is, is very interesting. And like it's kind of like the kind of a back corner of Europe and for hundreds of years was essentially colonized by England. So there was often not as much opportunity to develop the kind of art music 
of like, you know, orchestras and choirs and stuff that you see in a lot of other European traditions. But Ireland was also, the culture is very family-based. And so you have traditions like wakes where after someone dies, they essentially gather together to celebrate their life. That and all of the, the gathering and family tradition of Ireland really lends itself to communal music making. Have you ever been to Ireland before? I have. I spent 48 hours in Dublin and <laughs> that was it. I, I would love to go back and spend more time there. Yeah. So after you finished your degree, you said that you were interested in combining your vocal and research expertise to give a voice to underrepresented communities. Can you elaborate on this? Like what specifically do you want to do? The two things that I'm really passionate about are, I guess, I guess the one thing I'm really passionate about is telling stories and that manifests both through my writing and my music. And so what I want to do is I want to give opportunities for voice lessons, private voice lessons to kids, mainly high school students who would not otherwise have the opportunity to learn music like that and therefore let them find their own voice and their own way of expression. In doing so, I, I want to connect to the community and listen to hear the kind of stories that they want to tell and then use my experience in writing to tell them to tell those stories and get them out into the world. It seems like you are interested in, in areas outside of the United States. Would you want to do this practice outside of the United States or inside the United States or you're just you're unsure at the moment? Unsure of where in the world my life will lead me at the moment. Mm-hmm. Right now I'm in Denver and that's the community that I'm investing myself in at the moment. But I did I did spend four months in Scotland. And I would love to go back there. I would love to travel Europe and see the world and see where I end up. I know that in European countries, music is like you were talking about with Ireland. Music is very big in in their communities. So when you were in Scotland, were you able to experience any of that? Any like just fun pubs? It could be anywhere from fun pubs or just, you know, getting together and singing with people. I had so much fun with music in, in Scotland. The best thing I did was I joined the Academy of Sacred Music, which is, it sounds really fancy, but it's just a bunch of community members from around the West End of Glasgow who get together to sing sacred music, old and new, and bring back that tradition. And it ranged everywhere from trained opera singers to just someone's dad who really loved music. I also joined the Scala in the, the parish that I attended, and we sang the Gregorian chant for every morning mass. I also I did, of course, go to several pubs and listen to several absolutely fantastic sessions. If you have never been to a Celtic music session, I highly recommend it. The level of communication and energy between performers is astounding. Yeah. So would you say that out of those three experiences, you really enjoyed the live Celtic music 
the most or do you have a different preference? It's like comparing apples and oranges, really. They're different kinds of experiences with slightly different kinds of music. And I enjoyed them all. Yeah. So when you were in the small choir that you were talking about, correct me if I'm wrong, it wasn't the Gregorian chant choir where you were performing at mass, but the first one you were mentioning. So you said that there was just a variety of people that were a part of that group from opera singers to people who wanted to participate because their dad was in a choir. What was that experience like? Because I know with being a music student, there are some ensembles where you are just surrounded by music professionals and people who are really engulfed in that kind of musical community. So what what was that like to be part of a group that was of such a large variety? Being part of a group that had such a variation in levels was honestly quite refreshing. First, there was kind of, there was less pressure to always be on top of it, always be performing the exact correct things at the exact correct moment, which of course we all still paid attention to. But if someone messed up because it was a Saturday morning and they hadn't had their coffee yet, we just all laughed about it. And it also made me appreciate how much easier it is for me to learn and perform music now that I've had so much technical training. Going back to your plans for after graduation, do you want to be able to create communities that are like that for underrepresented communities or strictly voice lessons? Right now, I am very open and I'm exploring my options and seeing where my life and my passion lead me. I'm obviously, I'm still taking voice lessons myself and seeking out church groups to perform in. And eventually I hope to do a combination of both voice lessons and community choirs. Choirs have been the most profound musical experiences that I've had in the most community building. And I want to provide more opportunities for people to do that one more question regarding the you know giving a voice to underrepresented communities is there any event that you and you encountered that inspired this idea that you wanted to provide a voice for these communities I attended high school in a very tiny rural town in Colorado and while I was attending that high school I got to see kids who Maybe didn't have the best situations at home. The percentage of people living under the poverty line in my hometown is, last time I checked, 40%. And I got to see how being in a choir gave them a chance to set aside those, those problems and focus on bettering themselves and doing something that they really enjoyed. Do you plan to keep performing in the future? Do you plan to still participate in choirs? Or do you just want to be able to provide musical opportunities to other people now that you've had your your experience in music? I think the more performance experience I can get, the more I can give to any students I have. So... I do still plan to pursue chorus opportunities. I, I can't wait until we can sing in choirs again. As I said, that's my 
That's my favorite. That's that's what I live for. And as I start to grow more confident in my abilities, I'll start to pursue more solo opportunities. Yeah, that's that's all I have for you today. Do you have any other thoughts that you want to share? I hope everyone is taking care of themselves and washing their hands and practicing self-care. Thank you so much for listening. Part two should be up right now, so please head over to listen to that one to meet the other half of our hosts. 